What's up, What's Res listeners? This is Ethan Delves, and today I'm going to be interviewing David Peru on the different types of debate in the NSDA. David, thanks for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to do it. So where are you from, and how long have you been doing debate for? Right, so I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, and I go to a school called Basis Peoria. I've been doing debate for four years, but I've only been doing like national circuit debate for the last year and a half. Okay, so what type of education do you get at your school? Um, yeah, just like what was the focus of that education? So Basis Pure is a charter school in Arizona and it has a very heavy STEM focus. One of the kind of weird parts about Basis that is, that is unique to it, at least as far as Arizona goes, is we have uh, one track and it's a very AP heavy track. Most kids are going to be taking 12 to 17 APs by the time they graduate and there's no alternative, like general education alternative. So you're gonna see a very heavy standardized test focus on my school. So you have one track, so is that like a long break in the summer and you just do school the rest of the time or? Yeah, so okay. well, we have like winter break, fall break obviously, but what I mean by one track is there's no alternative classes you could take. Oh, okay. Like you so can't take one... like honors or general education, you have to take the AP honors course and okay. there's no alternative. So do you, what kind of debates do you do? And you do it through your school, like, yeah. and so you said you've done national circuit debate for a year and a half. Yeah. What's Do you prefer national circuit or what was kind of your route before that? Sure. So Arizona has local tournaments and they are usually held by the NSDA, like they're in conjunction with the NSDA. Some are held by the AIA, which is the Arizona like Sport Athletic Association. And they host two tournaments a year, states and winter trophy, which is like a mini states. Uh, the rest are just normal NSDA tournaments, but they're tinier, obviously, than a national circuit tournament. If I prefer, whether you're asking me if I prefer local yeah. tournaments or national circuit tournaments, I would say that uh, definitely national circuit tournaments. Okay. They're more competitive. They're the, ju- the judging and the competition is of higher quality. And ultimately, there's a lot more to gain from them. The, the experience, the people that you meet, the arguments that you're going to hear, and also the way that it transforms your life is significantly more so in the national circuit than okay. it is locally. So what exactly about the national circuit makes it higher quality? Is it, Are the local tournaments, is there like a distinct difference between mm-hmm. local and NSDA tournaments? So for one, a couple of the, the just tournament level things, like tournament structure level things, a national circuit tournament, you're going to have six preliminary rounds, whereas a okay. local tournament, you're going to have four, right? This just makes it easier to like determine breaks and it makes it less susceptible to like judge screws or just one-off rounds and stuff like that. Those are structural things. Other structural things, a lot of tournaments ensure some level of quality control. They take more care in training their judges. But most importantly, national circuit tournaments have bids at the, you know, at certain levels in them. So octafinal bid tournaments can have a bid to the TOC in the octafinal round, quarterfinal in the quarterfinal round, so on and so forth. Uh, and because they have these bids, and the Tournament of Champions is the most prestigious tournament in high school debate, it attracts a lot of the best debaters and the best debating schools. So you're going to attract, like to the ASU tournament, we attract kids from as far as Ohio, for example, okay. right? And they're all flying in, and the kids who are going to be spending thousands of dollars flying in, bringing their coaches with them, are going to be kids that are very dedicated to the activity, with coaches and judges that are very dedicated to the activity. So you have just more competition and more, a better, better quality judging. Okay, so as far as judging quality goes, yeah. what would you say makes a quality judge? Because you were, as far as NSDA tournaments mm. go, they put a little more quality control into it and better training for the judges. So what should a judge be looking for in a debate round in order to decide for between two different sides? Well, obviously this is depending on the event that you're judging. Like LD and policy, I believe, should have like experienced judges. I, oh, in my belief, like I feel like especially for national circuit, like if there's a bid at the end of the tournament, you probably should have a judge that has done or coached LD or has have been involved with LD or policy pretty heavily uh, because otherwise they're not going to be able to keep up with the level of argumentation, like critical argumentation that national circuit debaters are going to be running. 
Uh, for public forum, obviously, it's open much more to debate. Like a lot of people are saying that public forum was intended to be for lay people. So it should be judged by like citizen judges and people who don't necessarily have any experience. But I believe in the national circuit, especially with the way that the meta game is heading, you're seeing very fast, very technical debate with a lot of emphasis on argumentation and a lot of emphasis on basically just winning the flow and not much care given to presentation. And because that's the way that the meta game trends and that's the way that the TOC ultimately ends up being, uh, I believe that for national circuit tournaments, I would lean more towards those type of judges, more technical, more flow-centric judges than your average, you know, lay people. Okay. Obviously, that's up for debate, and people disagree on that point. But I believe that in terms of deriving the most educational benefit from debate, uh, it's most condus- to do- conducive to education when you have those type of judges. Okay. Yeah. So I know I forgot to mention this to our listeners before, but currently we're at the Coolidge Foundation, and out rounds are going, so we both got knocked out yeah. um, eventually. But at the Coolidge Foundation, you see a mix of different types of judges because there's some here that have judged at NSDA tournaments. I know there was I got a public forum judge from one of those. And there's a lot of lay judges as mm-hmm. well that just either judge for the Coolidge Foundation or haven't done it before. So as far as what you're referring to as the meta game goes, is that like just the game of debate in, in, in and of itself? Is yeah, that- so it's like the way that debaters and debate teams and their coaches kind of develop strategies and then find out that the most efficient strategy and the most effective strategy for winning a round, for example, all else being equal, is being fast and technical and winning the argumentation, right? So that's the way that the metagame trends. And that's what a lot of national circuit debaters want to do. A lot of them are get really sad and really disappointed when they're at a national circuit tournament and they look up their judge's paradigm and find out it's a mom judge. Okay. Right? And that's because the, I would say, and I personally agree with this, it's more fun and more educational to have more technical debate because you're exploring much more depth and breadth of topics in the same amount of time. Okay. So I know, and I know a lot of people look at the NSD and kind of rear at the idea that, or they, they don't like the idea that it's really technical mm-hmm. because then as far as learning all of these different technicalities yeah. go, like I know like running T and running K and all these different things, people tend to not like that yeah. because they feel, or at least in, in a lot of the, I've heard a lot of comments of this where the educational properties of debate are taken away because mm-hmm. rather than focusing on the arguments, you would be focusing on more of technicalities like running a K, for example. So what sure. would you say to people that would yeah. make that argument? So one thing I would clarify is I don't think the NSDA is particularly tech. I think the national circuit is. And though the national circuit is obviously in conjunction with the NSDA, the national circuit leads up to the TOC, the Tournament of Champions, whereas local tournament national qualifiers lead up to the NSDA national championships, right? Okay. So they're like two separate tournaments. The NSDA and the national champion for the NSDA actually does lean more towards the lay kind of debate, more traditional, especially in LD and policy. You're seeing a lot of slow, very traditional teams in public forum as well. Uh, the national circuit though, like, you know, like we're talking bid tournaments and the tournament of champions does lean very, very progressive, very technical. Okay. What I would say is in terms of barriers to entry, I think that I would actually argue that technical debate has lower barriers to entry or at least lower barriers to success because I believe that when it comes to lay debate, one, it's impossible to predict whether or not you're going to win a round, right? It's impossible to guarantee that you're going to win a round because there's so much room for the judge to intervene and decide, right? Because there is no like firm metric to decide okay. a round. On the other hand, with, with technical debate, I think that there is a lot more room for your own skill and your own dedication to the activity to decide whether or not you're going to win. Okay, so yeah. so what you're describing here is an objective metric, or yeah. as objective as you can get exactly. as far as technicalities go. So the amount of work that you put in is sort of the, the result that you'll get yes. out of this. Yes, and then specifically on the point about education, right? You're telling me that some people 
would argue that like critical debate, critical arguments or tea or these technicalities take away from the educational value. But I think that the specifically because of the literature that is being read during critical debates and critical argumentation is actually very, very insightful. And for some people, it like completely has the potential to completely change their lives. Like there are a lot of debaters, especially in LD and policy, who view debate as like a survival strategy. That's like their relationship to debate. And that is because the literature that they have found, they relate to personally or they are the identity of the literature like if they're reading an Afropest K they're reading a queer rage K so on and so forth and they relate to those things and they they use the literature to help them cope with the struggles of assi- being like us like assigning themselves to that identity and so on and so forth okay. and it also helps us like for example I can't read it like, like most identity K's right like I'm a straight white dude so for me if I'm hearing that in a round I'm basically educated about the experiences that these people have and how the resolution relates to those experiences. Okay. So I think it's very beneficial. So as far as your own um, debate skills in a round, or if you're looking for those technicalities in a round, mm-hmm. and you're going up against someone that's able, because of the race that they are or whatever they are, sure. to run those sorts of things, would that take away from your objective ability to win the round based on the K's so, and, the, and the T's that you could run? So in a lot of circuits, it's not like enforced that like if you don't assign to a specific identity, you don't read it. I just don't think, like in my personal opinion, I don't think that people should be exploiting literature of like oppressed people okay. to win a ballot, right? But I also think very clearly that I don't, at the end of the day, the reason we do debate is for the educational aspect. That's the reason that schools fund debate. That's the reason that people stick with it. That's the reason my teacher lets me travel to tournaments, right? If it was just a game, nobody would let me do that. So the educational aspect, I think, is amplified by these type of arguments because even if I can't necessarily relate to it, I could definitely understand um, and you know be an understanding of the, the experiences that these people are going through and that these people are reading and living in the rounds that they talk about. As for the chances of winning, I don't think that that's necessarily the case because... any great debater like there are these arguments have been around for decades right and any great debater who works hard and prepares can respond to these arguments in ways that don't necessarily involve their own identity there are obviously really unintelligent ways and inflammatory ways to respond to these types of arguments that would lose you the round and justifiably so but there are also a lot of intelligent ways that you could you could articulate why maybe debate is not the space for this if that's your belief. Or maybe, even if debate is the space for this, my argument doesn't necessarily do the wrong oppressive things that your critique is telling me that I'm doing. Okay. Yeah. So in, in your opinion, what is the educational purpose of debate? What kind? What are you looking when you go into a round and you're going to tournaments to gain from the experience? Sure. So the most obvious, I guess, answer to that would be you're looking to get topic knowledge, right? Like you, okay. every debate is under a specific resolution. So the most direct type of education that you're going to get is the you know, the education and the knowledge and of the, the resolution of the resolution and of the topic, right? right? And everything surrounding it. And obviously every resolution is pretty broad, right? Right. So you're going to get a lot of historical background. Like we, we debated the Saudi Arabia resolution today, you know, the U.S. Yeah. and arms sales of Saudi Arabia. And that didn't educate you just on U.S.-Saudi relationship. It educated you on the entire geopolitical environment of the Middle East. So running, running a K on this type of debate or, um, Anything like that, you would mm. say, does not deteriorate from the historical no, knowledge uh, that you would gain. One, I don't think it does. I think it broadens the scope because you're going to hear okay. arguments about how cutting off arms sales to Saudi Arabia is going to incapacitate the ability for Saudi Arabia to conduct like military strikes, right? Okay. And that's going to help with the war in Yemen. You're going to hear that every round, right? Right. But what you're not going to hear every round is maybe not specifically for this topic, but you know, in other topics, how this resolution or this policy affects a certain marginalized group of people that isn't okay. included in these historical discussions usually. So yeah. for those types of resolutions 
runs, and I'm assuming if someone runs that on one side, your job on the other side, I think you were telling me about this on the bus, is determine what the link is between the K and yeah. the resolution. So how do you determine whether or not someone's made a legitimate connection between Well, these two it, it really depends on what their connection is. It really depends on the evidence that they read and why they and how they articulate that that connection is very real and is very problematic, right? Okay. And obviously you would dispute that. But I also think that the presence of K debate almost has a deterrent effect. Because the reason you read K debate, right? The reason a, a debater is going to read K, unless they read it just to win the ballot, which I think is the wrong reason to read critical arguments. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think reading them just to win the ballot is the wrong reason. I think the reason you read them is because you feel like there are genuine problems with either the language or the argumentation used by the other side or with the structure of debate or whatever else you're critiquing, right? Okay. So at the point where if you're reading K for the correct reasons and there is the, the risk of if your argument is in fact racist or if your argument is in fact rooted in, let's say, like colonial history, that the other person is going to read a K and their link is going to be true, right? At that point, it deters you from running these types of really problematic arguments. Okay. And it makes you, as a debater, especially going to the national circuit when you know that there's a possibility that the other team is going to read a K, it deters you to really think about the words and the arguments that you're making and basically vet them. Make sure that you're not... So marginalizing somebody or isolating them or oppressing them and so on and so, so forth. So this almost filters them into a form of more legitimacy or legitimacy is the point that you're trying to make here? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would call okay. it legitimacy, but okay. it, it forces you to be smarter about the arguments that you're making and more cognizant of the experiences of other people that you might not come across in your local circuit, right? Okay. I don't know what your local circuit is like, but my local circuit, it's relatively diverse, but it, it's exclusionary of, let's say, like Latinx people or African-Americans. They don't feature as prominently, right? On the national circuit, especially in policy and LD, uh, these voices not necessarily are more represented. I think there is a problem with underrepresentation of minorities in debate, but their, their arguments are definitely amplified. They're, the power of their arguments are definitely amplified on the national circuit. And because of that, it forces you to be more cognizant of their experiences. It opens your eyes to their experiences, which you might not get in an isolated local circuit, especially if it's not very diverse at all. Okay. Yeah. So something that we figured out so far about the difference between progressive and traditional debate is that certainly there are a lot of differences here, mm -hmm. right? I think that a lot of traditional debaters would name some certain skills that you gain in debate that would transfer into the real world. Mm -hmm. And those things may be the art of persuasion, the art sure. of supporting your argument with certain types of evidence and warrants. So what would you say that there are any benefits to progressive debate that carry over to the real world that yeah. could help in just as, as a life skill? Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would actually contend that uh, progressive debate or technical debate actually carries more, like we call them transferable skills. And a lot of the times in progressive debate, you're actually debating about the way debate should be debated. So that's what theory is all about, right? Theory definitionally is oh, this is the way that debate should look like. And the reason you justify theory, the way you justify theory rather, is through either real world skills, fairness, education, so on and so forth, right? So when we're looking at real world skills, we're looking at, for example, being able to analyze and logically kind of refute or a critical, like critically analyze uh, argumentation and arguments, right? Doing that the only difference, really, is when you're doing that in progressive debate, you're, I think, reaching a much more complex level of argumentation, so it helps you with that, and you're also doing more of it at once, right? Like, when you think of a progressive debate round, it's sometimes twice as fast as your traditional round, and a lot of people criticize that and say that they're just spitting nonsense and just reading Yeah, evidence, I hear that a lot. Right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that, but if you actually listen and, and take the effort to try to understand what they're saying, they're doing the same type of analysis, I would say even deeper levels of analysis, just at a much higher speed, which allows more analysis to fit in, which on one hand means that you have to think faster and harder in, in a more like 
shorter time frame because it forces you to do so, right? Because you have to fit more information in a short amount of time, but it also forces you to go deeper. I also feel like in terms of other transferable skills, the level of argumentation on a lot of like in sorry uh the level of argumentation a lot of traditional rounds is like pretty surface level from my experience especially like when comparing my local circuit to the national circuit right a lot of people are just getting their arguments from the briefs they're right, getting their yeah. arguments from you know the first kind of cnn article or the first you know google search result when you go on the national circuit a lot of the times more niche and nuanced argumentation is rewarded because those are the type of arguments that a lot of people aren't prepared for okay that's not to say that it encourages people to just look left field for the wildest arguments because at the end of the day stock arguments still wins but it forces you to look for nuances and very specific and careful warranting within those stock arguments in order to succeed okay yeah. so would you say that progressive debaters would agree with the idea that a lot of traditional debaters hold that debate is a mechanism for discovering truth I think that a lot of people would actually even on the okay. national circuit like I remember I was talking at TOC and there were a bunch of people who did say that at the end of the day, debate is a truth-seeking activity, okay. right? But I don't think that there is an inherent advantage to the goal, to the end of truth-seeking if you're going to be going slow versus if you're going fast. I think at the end of the day, it's the type and level of analysis that you make okay. that determines that. And that's and almost why you call it a meta game, perhaps, is because of the, the breadth of the debate reaches in yeah. all these circuits. And, and it's funny because even within like debate theory, a lot of people would argue that like you could have the arguments, is it better to go for a wide range of argumentation or for a deep range of argumentation? There are theory files about breadth versus depth. And there are the theoretical violations to like, let's say somebody in an LD round on the negative in the one NC is reading like seven off, right? And they're just dumping arguments onto you with very little warranting and very little analysis just to try to confuse you and spread you too thin. There are theoretical objections to that. And you can make the case within the round that that is the wrong way to debate because because it isn't conducive to these real life skills. Okay. But like, I think that if you look at LD finals this year at TOC, if you look at policy finals at TOC, even if you look at PF finals at TOC, you are getting real warranted analysis. You are getting very complex interaction between arguments and you're getting very, very smart debaters doing their thing. And I think that those debaters tend to be very, very, very successful people as okay. a result of these skills. Like I know personally, in terms of improving my writing, right? My English teacher, I had her both in ninth grade and in 12th grade, right? That's the way that our class works. And she told me in 12th grade that she believes that it's entirely because of debate that I was able to grow as a writer, for okay. instance, because the process of writing cases and making sure that they are you know, not problematic, making sure that they are very logical and analytical helps and transfers over into other type of academic writing or even not academic writing. And I think that one misconception that people have is that circuit debate does not need you to use the art of persuasion or does not need you to be persuasive, which I think is totally not true. Uh, a lot of the art that goes into writing, especially in public forum, a, a constructive is making it as persuasive as possible while also being as efficient as possible. Okay. Right. And I think that that's an important skill. And a lot of the times when you're clashing, you know, comparing like two pieces of evidence that say the exact opposite thing, a lot of the times you have to use the art of persuasion to convince the judge that your piece of evidence is more important than theirs. And I think that applies in both policy and LD, although less so in those because those focus less on presentation. Okay. Yeah. And what's your main format? Again? I, I do public forum, public but I've forum. done policy and LD. Okay. Yeah. So it seems like there's a, a lot more similarities than I thought between traditional and progressive debate, for sure, as far as discovering truth goes and the, the quality of analysis and the depth of analysis. Mm -hmm. 
So, but it seems like the fundamental disagreement point between these two different types of debate is these underlying first principles, I guess you could call them, where I think one of the biggest ones is oppression too, because a lot of debate, some debaters would agree that oppression is not as prevalent as others would make it out to be. And then some debaters would say that is much more prevalent than yeah. others make it out to be. So how would you go about debating first principles with other people so that we can try to discover which one most accurately represents the real world? How would you go about doing Well, that? I think that that's exactly why we should have the room for critical debate and for critical argumentation within like LDN policy. And I guess increasingly so in public forum, although it's really not common. There's yeah, like, I can't imagine yeah, that making you, it. You could count on your hand the number of teams that are going, that are running, like regularly running critical argumentation. Uh, but in, in LDN policy, and this has been the case for decades now, the reason you have room for critical argumentation is in order to truth test the resolution or the argument or the plan that a team is running to see that if it does link into oppressive systems, if it does reinforce oppressive systems, if it does actually deconstruct them perhaps, right? And it is interesting to think about that because I feel like if you remove the room, if you say, if you run a league and you discourage the type of argumentation, you kind of already assume that that oppression isn't there. Hmm. Because you don't give it room. You don't give people who experience it room to voice their stories. And that's, okay. that's in my mind, what's happening. Am I screwing you guys up if I ask a question? Do they consider this the main house? Do you guys know? Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. this is so the main this house. This is where Amity is. Uh, I don't know if she's here right now. She might be at the procession. They went to, down to the cemetery to really yeah, she told me to be yeah. so okay. just make it sure. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around here. Yeah. All right, great. And you can, you can take care of it. No, I'll keep you there. That's funny, man. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. anyways, <laughs> so, okay. That's and the, were you done with what you were saying there? Um, yeah, I, I think that like having critical argumentation gives room for having that discussion. When you say or when you discourage or sometimes judges having their paradigms, do not read a K in front of me. When okay. you have that, it creates a deterrent effect on even starting the discussion. So is this is this almost limiting how debate plugs into the real world? And and what you're saying is that by running critical debate or having critical debate as an option you're opening up the contentions and the ideals in the debate to yeah. actually plug into something tangible later. Yeah, so my philosophy and the philosophy of most like national, not most national circuit, I would say most national circuit debaters, not all judges, not all coaches share this philosophy, but I would say a majority of debaters in the national circuit at the TOC do. And what they would argue is that the role of the judge is to be completely open book, right? They are open to any type of argumentation, any type of framing that the, the debaters argue or agree upon, so on and so forth. And their job is just to evaluate who debated their case better. Pure and simple. They shouldn't have preferences for one type of argumentation over the other. They shouldn't have preferences for one type of speed over the other. Obviously, you know, not everybody could listen to 400 words a minute spreading, right? So that's where the training comes in? And, and that, that, obviously, that's where the training comes in, but so I don't think that that's even an essential component of it, right? I don't think that the biggest differentiator between technical debate and lay debate is the speed because you could have technical debate at very slow speeds and there are teams that are excellent like absolutely like tournament winning teams that do very very technical very smart analytical nuanced debate at relatively slower speeds because that's how the judging is you know that's how the judges are you can't expect every judge from every circumstance to be totally able to follow 400 words a minute, right? right? But what I believe that you should be able to expect them to is to have an open mind and to come into the round. We call it tabula rasa, which is basically means like completely open to the argumentation that they see, no either a pre, you know, like preferences for one type or the other and not really like 
opposed to one type of argumentation over the other. The one exception I would say is a lot of judges, especially like the, the what we consider like the best, most technical judges, uh, and the most technically competent judges, a lot of them do have like a disclaimer, like I'm open to an old type of argumentation, but, right, don't read blatantly sexist, racist, oppressive arguments in front of me because you will lose. Okay. And I think that's fair. I do think that's fair, right? Obviously, I don't think that... So there was a round. There was a very famous round at the ASU tournament. I don't know. It's on YouTube for all your viewers if they want to see it. Where at the ASU tournament, in like the down four pool, like these were not like excellent teams, right? In the down four pool, they one team read like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson as a K in really? response to a different K. So the, Are the, you a Jordan Peterson fan? Uh, not personally. Fan? Okay, but all right. Anyway, so the, the argument basically was... Uh, one team basically goes like our experiences as Latinx women like define our relation to the debate, and I forgot what the exact argumentation was. You could you know view it online, and the other team basically reads a counter K to it, and they say they cite Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, and they say your experiences, your identity doesn't matter, right? Your identity doesn't matter. It was like a K against identity Ks. Okay. It was really interesting, and so it was like the facts don't care about your feelings, kind, kind, of, thing. kind of like that's okay. that's like the way that they you know say like to sell it. Um, so yeah, it was like a K. I didn't think the K was particularly good. I don't think most people did. I don't think that it was compelling. The argument, the the impact of the K was like if we care about identity, that leads to genocide. Huh. It was very very weird link chain. Okay. Um, but the other team basically just asserted it was racist, and mm. then the judge agreed, um, and then just ended the round. And that's not how these things. So should go, I don't think that that's how they think. So yeah. I think that. I think that the problem in that round was particularly that neither te- like the team that accused the other team of being racist couldn't articulate why it was racist mm. and maybe the judge did know why it was racist and that's why he intervened to stop the round but I think it wasn't like it was obviously like there is a case to be made that the authors read like Ben Shapiro specifically have like very problematic things about them and sh- and they, they could have pointed those things out and used them as a reason to vote the other team down or to stop the round. Okay. But what that didn't happen in that round, what just happened was an assertion that it was racist and there was no uh, argumentation about it. Obviously blatantly racist things need not be argued that they are blatantly racist, right? It's very obvious. But in that specific example, I think that there was a great lack of, 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 interaction with argumentation okay so what would you say if someone asked you about what about the authors exactly is it that their ideas are flawed or is it that they're them as people so i think it was people i think i don't want to speak for the the people in that round but i think the objection was too full i think it was one the argument was racist itself because you're telling me that my experiences as a member of an identity don't matter right and for a lot of people that those experiences are totally life-defining and especially when it's like two white men telling two latinx women that their experiences as latina women don't matter that's that's you know that's very very much undermining of the structural oppression that they have to deal with. So I think that that was the first objection that they made. I don't think it was well articulated, but I think that that's what they were trying to say. Okay. The second objection I think that they had was that the authors themselves, uh, Peterson not so much as Ben Shapiro, but both of them have articles or books or tweets or whatever out there that are extremely problematic. Okay. And though they didn't point them out, I think that that's what they were also trying to say. So they were trying to say, one, the argument is racist, two, the authors are racist. And the judge did agree with that. Okay. I'm sure that the judge, the judge probably knew more than the debaters in that round about why he was stopping the round. 
Um, but the, the problem that I see, and this is like a lot of problem, the problem that happens when the kind of progressive technical world of debate mashes with the traditional kind of world of debate. That video was uploaded to YouTube and a bunch of people who have no real idea what circuit debate or what policy, this was a policy round, right? What policy debate looks like commented and were like disgusted with the state of debate. They're like, this is why America is rotting. This is what they're teaching our kids. How, you know, what is going on? Why are they reading so fast? So on and so forth. And I think a lot of that comes from a place, I don't want to say of ignorance, okay. right? But yeah. a place of just inexperience with what circuit debate looks like and with what policy debate looks like and with this type of argumentation and this critical argumentation. And I think that that is harmful to the activity because, and, and this is the way it's painted in the Arizona circuit as well. Like policy kids are seen as the wackos who just run really ridiculous left field argumentation. And that's almost like a knee jerk reaction. Like people don't even listen to the arguments that they're reading. It's just a knee jerk reaction because they have this preconceived notion that they're all running weird left field nuclear war scenarios that make no sense, right? Hmm. But a lot of the times, even though sometimes I will admit that the nuclear war scenarios are far-fetched, right? The underlying argumentation that is promoted, even in these far-fetched scenarios, is very, very conducive to real-world skills, very conducive to logic and analysis, and so on and so forth. So you're saying maybe not just, you talk, called it tabula rasa is the, yeah. the word? Maybe not just the judges, but also viewers of these sorts of debates need to come in with that tabula rasa open Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent, I, I didn't even think of that, but I think okay. that's an excellent, that would be excellent, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Do you have any other funny stories that you want to tell us or interesting debate stories that you have from your experience in circuit debate? Um, in, in, that, that would apply to this conversation, not so much. I guess it's, it's like a dichotomy. So we, I started in policy. That was my first event. So when transitioning over to public forum, which is even today much more like traditional debate and much slower and much less critical and much more focused on stock argumentation rather than these really far left field arguments, um, it was difficult, right? That transition is difficult. And I think the transition from traditional debate to progressive debate is difficult. But I think that the resources are out there, right? Like if you, if you, for me, the transition was not dumbing down my argumentation, but learning how to adapt to lay judges, right? Um, in the, uh, even on the other hand, like going from traditional to progressive debate, I think the resources are out there. There's uh, PDFs and 100-page files about critiques, how to run them, what they, why they're important, what they mean. They could explain all the things I've said way better than I've explained them, right? The problem is that it takes a while to learn it. It takes dedication to parse through the mountains of information and when you're going to a national circuit tournament to watch the rounds, pass through your eliminated and really learn from the debaters. But I will say one thing. I will say that there is a problem with exclusion and elitism in circuit debate and in normal debate. I don't want to assert that one type of debate is better than the other at including people. Because in circuit debate, what you're seeing is that at the end of the day, people that can afford to travel to tournaments people that could afford to hire coaches or people who come from really wealthy schools that already have, you know, plentiful resources to send them to, you know, private schools, so on and so forth. Uh, they have an advantage inherently. They have coaches doing their prep. They have, you know, that's not to take yeah. anything away from the students. I'm, they're incredibly hardworking if they achieve any sort of success in the debate world. Right. But there is this barrier to entry, especially for lower income kids. And that's why things like urban debate leagues are so important and like volunteering for urban debate leagues or trying to spread inclusion uh, to schools that might not have the resources, right? E even something as little as if you're a solid debater, if you're experienced, if you've you know, won a couple tournaments, or even if you haven't won a couple tournaments, but know more than a novice, right? Because you've been doing it for four years. Even if they're not from your school, helping them, right? And just telling them about you know, this argument, or even if you hit a novice and you're, it's an open division tournament and you're a varsity senior versus a novice freshman, right? And obviously you cream them. Yeah. And then you realize, well, 
after the round, maybe what I should do is talk to them rather than just go back to my team and boast about how like totally like clapped this kid. Maybe I should go instead and talk to the kid and be like, okay, this is some of the stuff that I've learned over my four years and I think it would help you. Because one thing that I'm really, really bitter about to this day is that I came, I came from a school with no coaching. I start, like I basically started my debate program alongside what became our sponsor okay. and I've been the captain of it ever since. Wow. And I never really had any sort of like professional coaching experience. I never hired a private coach, so on and so forth. The biggest way that I learned is through my friends. The friends, obviously I went to camp, I went to NDF my sophomore year. And then from there, I met a lot of people on the national circuit. And from them, I learned a lot of the things that made me successful in debate. Okay. Right. And obviously I try my best to spread that information to as many like people as I can. Like what you're doing now, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would say so. And, and, and I'm, you know, coaching at camps, you know, this summer for the same reason. And I'm coaching, you know, being, I'm assistant debate coach uh, next year at a school in LA, next to where I'm going to school for college. And yeah, I, I do believe that. I, I think that it's my turn to give back to the community. But I do, I do have very intimate experience with how difficult it is to really come onto the national circuit and how difficult it is to have success on the national circuit coming from a school that does not have experience, does not have you know peers that have done it themselves, does not have coaches that have experience with it. And it is a transition. And I think that it is a responsibility of the current community to reach out to those people that are trying to make the transition, to make it as seamless as possible and to invest in, 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 in resources. Like I know that there's a bunch of like debate nonprofits and things like that that try to help these type of schools and these students. And it is also the responsibility, I think, of, and I guess the only kind of responsibility I would place on the people trying to transition is to seek out that information. Okay. Um, so community is huge. Community in, is, in the, is so huge. And, and I think it's ironic because the elitism of the community makes it so you have to achieve success before you have access to the peers and tools and coaches that enable you to have success. And that's where the personal dedication at the beginning comes exactly. in. Exactly. Okay. And I think a lot of it is, I think a lot of it, it's not necessarily just, hey, you need to work harder, right? I think a lot of it is the community needs to be more inclusive. It needs to take a, an important step towards being more inclusive. And there are resources online. Like, for example, one thing that the National Circuit uh, and just top teams of the National Circuit have did is is this website. There's the wiki, obviously, the NDCA, yeah. PF, LD, and Policy Wiki, where there's just back files of teams and disclosure happens. And then there's also this other a website. I think it was like Debate Coaches or something like that. I, I forgot the exact name. But essentially what this website has is a bunch of really good national circuit teams and they just post years of prep on there, right? A lot of them have graduated already. So they just post all of their back files for every topic since they, you know, the freshman to their senior year. And that is a really good resource for kids to, and debaters, especially aspiring national circuit debaters, to open, look at how the cases are constructed and see the differences. You know, what makes a national circuit case different from a traditional case? Look at the block files. Okay. And that's an excellent resource and it's an excellent step that we've taken because it didn't really exist before this year, before the end of TSC this year, actually, very recently. But developments like this, I think, need to continue. And on the, on the, on the side of like the traditional kind of people trying to transition into the national circuit, they just have to be... You know, it, it is going to be tiring. Sometimes you're going to lose motivation. Sometimes you're not going to want to keep going because you're going to feel like it's unfair, right? My local circuit has nothing like this. How am I supposed to compete with these kids with, you know, three coaches, four coaches, five coaches? How, how do I do it, right? And a lot of it is, you'd be surprised. Some of them are much more friendly than they seem in round. So for one, reaching out, especially if you tell them, hey, like I'm new to this, any advice you could give me, most of them would. Um, but other than that, just being dedicated, being open, because a lot of the most impressive success stories come from kids, no school, no, I mean, no school debate program, no coach, who just rose and used their own talent and their own hard work to become legends in the debate circuits. Well, that, that all is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And even more so, 
I think this has definitely been one of the most insightful interviews that we've ever had on the show because yeah. it's really a position that we don't get to see a lot of. So I really appreciate you yeah. coming on today, David. Thank I, you so much. I for appreciate. On. I appreciate you having me. I, I love national. Service. I, I stand by the idea that despite all its frustrations and despite the frustrations of transitioning and despite of frustrations of going from policy to PF and then from traditional PF to national circuit PF and trying to get better at it and trying to get better at technical debate and being able to adapt to lay debate at the same time and not having a coach, not having a school, despite all the frustrations that come associated with that, I stand by the fact that I think debate is the best activity I've ever done and competing on the national circuit is the best decision I've made within that activity. Okay. And I want to see as many people as possible. I want to see the circuit to grow, to be as inclusive as people from all over. Because right now it's dominated by teams from California, New York, Texas, so on and so forth. The more teams we have from other parts of America, the more communities we have joined, the more diverse the circuit becomes, the more conducive it is to the type of education that I'm so happy to have derived from it. So thank well, you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And with that, I'm just going to close this out. What's the Res listeners? If you would like to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you can find us at what's the res underscore. You can email us with any questions at what's the res at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.whatstherez.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.